Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. If anyone would come after me, said Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, for my sake, will save it. Every reformer that we've considered these past several weeks took up their cross and followed Jesus. It's impossible for them to have been disciples if that were not the case. But in God's wisdom, some crosses are heavier than others. When we come to Menno Simons, we may be coming to the heaviest cross that any of the reformers of the 16th century had to bear. Menno's legacy and the legacy of the Anabaptists we'll talk about is one of suffering. And so maybe it is fitting that we're ending this class on Menno Simons. We've looked at the reformers who all suffered in their own way. Some you saw were killed for their faith. Others survived, but with great sorrows inside and outside the church. But Menno Simons just had a, a unique degree of suffering, as did all of his Anabaptist acquaintances where he was. Now we don't today, therefore, remember Menno Simons primarily for his theology or his theological writings. Some of these are actually good from the excerpts I've read of them, but he also had some theological problems and we'll talk about that. Nor do we primarily remember Menno Simons for the applications of scripture he always made. He made many, many good ones. He also made some that later developed into familiar with Mennonites. Some of you maybe come from a Mennonite background. That's from Menno Simons. And an offshoot of the Mennonites, my own heritage, the Amish. But some of his applications of scripture led, it wasn't his direct application, but his application led in the direction of the Amish, who are very much given to tradition, shunning, isolated community, and we'll see that as well. So it's not his theology primarily, much of it was good. It's not his application of scripture primarily, though much of it was good, that we're interested in. For these reasons, sometimes he's overlooked, but the example that Menno gives us as we consider him as a reformer is an example of suffering. He took up his cross. It was a very calculated risk, a taking up of the cross. He knew what he was getting into in ways that others perhaps did not when they entered into the Christian life. And for 25 years, he endured great suffering. And as a consequence of his suffering, a significant part of Europe and then the rest of the world thereafter came to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be set free. As I said, he was an Anabaptist. That requires a little introduction in itself. Anna is a prefix. It means again, Baptist. The Anabaptists were a group in the 16th century that believed what you and I believe when it comes to baptism. That is, that according to Scripture, one believes the gospel, is inwardly changed, and then as a picture of what has happened is baptized. This is called the believer's baptism position or just the Baptist position as well. 
Today, this is very common. You find this all over the world and all across the U.S. It's what we hold as a church. But in the 16th century, this view was not common. Almost no one held this view. The Roman Catholic Church, which religiously had dominated Europe for over a thousand years, did not believe in this kind of baptism. It held to an infant baptism or paedo-baptism. The Catholic Church held paedo-baptism to be a removal of original sin. They had other theology that went with it. The Reformers refused, rejected that view of infant baptism. And if you have Presbyterian friends today or others who are evangelical but practice infant baptism, they are not identical to the Catholic Church here. They, with the Reformers, reject the Catholic view of infant baptism, but they keep the right itself of baptizing infants. What ended up happening, this is such an unusual view, the Anabaptists became marked including Menno Simons, one of its leaders, for this view of rebaptism, baptism of adults. In our day, we think that's not that big of a deal. It's obviously very important, but we can have union, unity with other denominations who disagree on this point. That's true. In the 16th century, if you disagreed with infant baptism, you were hunted, you were caught, you were imprisoned, you were tortured to tell about where the other Anabaptists were, then you were either burned, beheaded, or drowned. This was a common experience for the Anabaptists. We, of course, today are very surprised by this. Why should your view of baptism lead to you being hunted and killed? And I'm not just talking about by the Roman Catholic Church. One sad legacy of Lutherans and the Reformed in the 16th century is while they themselves were fleeing the persecution of the church, they were also persecuting this lesser known group, the Anabaptists. They too were killing Anabaptists because they disagreed when it came to baptism. I'm missing a page here. Guess I'll have to try to remember what I was going to say. So they too differed, the Reformed Church differed as well when it came to this view of Anabaptism. Menno Simons, as we're going to see, would become one of the most important leaders, if not the most important leaders of the Anabaptists. So as soon as he left the Catholic Church and took this view of baptism, everything changed for him. Now when we think of baptism, we think, why would we kill over that? Primarily because we think the issue is just baptism, but that is not the case. This was not really an issue of do you baptize a child or an adult. That was secondary. The primary issue that led to such division in the 16th century, even among true believers, was what is the nature of the church? You see, the practice of the Roman Catholic Church, which was carried over into the Protestants, was to baptize the infant partly for this reason. As we've said before, in the 16th century, the church and the state were one thing. A whole city was Christian. That meant everyone needs to be Christian within that city or within that nation, and it was enforced. Now, if you're going to enforce not just people willingly coming to church like this, but all of Evansville needs to come here must under penalty, then the best way to maintain a united city is to make sure everybody has to be a Christian, at least in name. And the best way to do that is to get them before they think about it. You get them when they're an infant, and you baptize them because they have no choice in the matter, 
And it led into whatever its origins and theology and thought, what it led into and what continued its use, in part at least, was that if you baptize infants in that day, it was much easier to keep away political radicals, much easier to experience social cohesion. We all stick together. The Anabaptists who were, began with the reformers like Luther and Zwingli, they break away from the Catholic Church, but then they want to take the next step. They say in the scriptures, the church is not just everyone in our city, the church is true believers. And that's true. That's in the scriptures, isn't it? And they say, and in the scriptures, there's not one clear example of infant baptism. You baptize believers because that's what the church is. The reformers like Luther at first said, this does make some sense. But then they realized what the consequences would be. And I'm not going to judge their motives and get into all their line of thought, but this had some influence, almost certainly, that if they went all the way and practiced early church, the early church's method of how you do church, it would have very severe consequences for social unity and for how Reformed and Lutheran traditions would continue and survive. So they went this far, but they would not go this far. The Anabaptists went this far, and that was just far enough to secure the death of many of them, since they were considered political radicals who would mess up society. So as we come now to Menno Simons, we want to look at his life because of the suffering. He was 200 years ahead of his time in his view of the nature of the church. He was correct in that position. And he suffered greatly for it. He took up his cross, and that's what we're primarily observing today. So I want to begin with Menno, where he was born. If you think about suffering and causes you some fear or anxiety, I want you to know as we look at Menno's life that you're in good company. For the first large part of his life, he was afraid of suffering as well, and he avoided it like the plague. He was born in the Netherlands around the time of the other reformers, towards the end of the 1400s. And I just want to explain this, and maybe I'm late to this party and you all already know this, but I have always been confused by what the term Dutch actually means. So let me just clearly explain it, because he's a Dutch reformer. Dutch simply means you're from the Netherlands. The Netherlands is a region, the low countries, lower. The Netherlands is a region that borders... Do this backward. On one side, there's Germany, right next door, the Netherlands. Then you have the North Sea, and just a short way over, you have England. So here's the Netherlands, bordered by the sea and by Germany. If you're born in the Netherlands, you are Dutch. Our friend Menno's born in the Netherlands. He is Dutch. I always thought, well, isn't it people from Holland who are Dutch? And forgive my ignorance, I thought Holland was a country. And <laughs> maybe you did too, I don't know. Holland is two provinces within the Netherlands. So if you're from Holland, you're Dutch because you're from the Netherlands as well. Anyways, that's always confused me. But to confuse you just a little bit more, he wasn't from those provinces. He was from a northern province called Friesland. It bordered the sea. It used to be called Phrygia. So we could say that Menno Simons was Phrygian, but that's too confusing. So we're going to say he was Dutch. That's what he was. Now, during his lifetime, the Netherlands, during his lifetime, was taken over by the Holy Roman Empire, 
which was ruled by none other than Charles V, the man who tried Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, the Catholic Habsburg ruler who wanted to silence the Reformation. He is progressively taking over the Netherlands as Menno is living his adult life. Now, this becomes very important for Menno in the Netherlands because, born in 1496, this means all the major events of the Reformation we've studied, which are taking place next door in Germany, are happening while Menno is in his 20s, a young man. And these things don't stay next door. They begin to make their way over into the neighbor of the Netherlands. These radical ideas from the Reformation. It's also important because you remember in Germany, Charles, the Holy Roman Emperor, wanted to squash the Reformation, but he couldn't because the German princes opposed him. But there was nothing like this in the Netherlands. And hence, a lot of suffering would follow. He would be able to squash those who came against the Roman Catholic Church much easier in the Netherlands than in a place like Germany. And that's just what he would do. So it's in this politically, religiously charged region that Menno Simons is growing up. We don't know a lot of the details of his early life. He must have had some early education. It's at the age of 28, so almost my age, a year older, he becomes ordained as a priest of the Roman Catholic Church. He's immediately placed in a region, a city right next to his hometown where he grew up, and then shortly after, in his hometown. He enjoys an incredibly high salary as a priest in his hometown. And along with this, he gets the reputation he so much desires. He says he went into work as a priest because he wanted an easy life, and he wanted to be respected. And that's exactly what he found. So not long after he's 28 years old, it seems like Menno has really arrived. No doubt his family respect him. You have the community there in his hometown. They respect him. He becomes well known for what he's teaching. And as a priest, and he's making a lot of money, he says early on in these years, he would often give himself over to cards and drinking. It was just an easy life. One of his great heroes, a little bit later, was named Erasmus. Because Erasmus was also Dutch, even though he traveled around Europe. Erasmus came to criticize the church, but you remember he never broke from it. And because he never broke from it, he lived an easy life, fairly easy life. Things were provided for him. And it seems like that's exactly what our friend Menno wanted for himself. He was performing the Mass. He was baptizing infants. He was doing everything the church required of him. And he knew so long as he did what the church taught and required, he would have this excellent life. The problem was that doubt soon crept into his mind. Time after time, he elevated the host during the mass. And he believed in accordance with the church that that bread was turned in that moment into the literal body of Jesus Christ, so that when he gave it to the people who came to him, he was conferring grace, even salvation, on those who are partaking of Jesus' body. But then a doubt crept into his mind, and it was simply this, what if that's not true? That is not 
A very good thing to think as a Catholic priest in the 16th century, but it was there. He didn't voice it immediately, but it really began to bother him. He suppressed the thought. He still wanted his comfortable life, but now he's struggling with doubt. A few years later, he encounters yet another doubt. Another stone begins to slip from the foundation on which he's built his life because he hears of a man named Sika Snyder who is from another region of the Netherlands. And he hears of this man, Sika, who for nothing other than wanting to be baptized as an adult, strange concept in that day, Sika had been baptized as an adult and they cut off his head. So Menno, probably at that time, thinks, why would Sika so ardently hold to this belief in rebaptism? that he'd be willing to lose his head, and why would the church so oppose it that they'd be willing to take it? So again, doubts are creeping into his mind concerning the church that he's serving and what it teaches. Not long afterward, he encounters this growing movement known as the Anabaptists. He didn't start that movement. It was already begun. Uh, Some of its origin came from Zwingli. We had talked about that with the radicals. But it had already begun, and he begins to encounter these people as he's ministering as a priest. Sika was the first, I think, the first martyr of the Anabaptist movement in the Netherlands. But there were more and more who were coming nearby. He's beginning to encounter some of their thoughts about the nature of the church, different from what he's always believed. And these Anabaptists are dying for what they believe. And we imagine that this challenged Menno because here he was starting to doubt, but he does not want to give up his comfortable life. And yet these people with nothing lose the little that they have for this belief. So Menno is wrestling with his doubt. He makes a decision that becomes the most important of his life. He had studied to become a priest. He had been working now as a priest for some time. He had never read the Bible. In fact, Menno says... He was scared to read the Bible. He was afraid that if he actually read it, he might go off into some error. Or maybe, I don't know this for sure, maybe he thought he might find some truth that would ruin his lifestyle. So for whatever reason, he refuses to read the Bible. But with these doubts starting to come on, he realizes unless he reads the Bible itself, the very source of the teaching, he'll never know what's really true. He had encountered already, around this time at least, some of the thoughts of Luther next door in Germany. In fact, he had gone, even though Charles V had put out an edict saying, nobody reads Martin Luther, penalty of death, I believe it was death, nonetheless, he had actually found some books of Luther and had read them. And Luther was saying the same thing. He was saying the Catholic Church has tricked us and nobody knows it because nobody's reading the Bible, at least none of the common people. So he goes to the Bible, and what he finds there is uh, probably an unpleasant surprise, because he comes to find, as he studies the Bible more and more, that all of the central doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, upon which he built his life, were not in the Bible. He looks and he says, where's the Mass? Where is transubstantiation as the body of Jesus, the bread turning into that? Where's infant baptism? Where's this view of the church? Where where are all these things? He doesn't find them. Now he's very much troubled. Where's this whole system of salvation? If it's not here, how do we know that it's true? 
So over time, Menno takes a kind of middle position. I call this first season of his life a priest divided because he's starting to be divided. He's realizing he needs to be consistent. So he starts teaching from his pulpit some of the things he's learning, but in a careful way, but he's actually teaching the Bible. This actually only increases his popularity, it seems, as people are hungry for the Bible, but he's still a faithful member of the Catholic Church getting into dangerous territory, but he's still in the church. At this point, he's Erasmus, and he could live the rest of his life as Erasmus and die, and we would never hear of him. But this is not what happens with Menno, because there's one event left in store in this early part of his life that will change everything for him. What had happened around this time as he encounters Anabaptists, and one reason we don't study the Anabaptists all the time Because sadly, they were a mixed bag. There were some who had very good theology and teaching, and there were others who had very bad. And this was a reality in Menno's day. He recognized it. Here he had been studying the scriptures. He was coming to a truer knowledge of God's word. But more and more Anabaptists were coming into his area. And he began to see that a lot of them were like sheep without a shepherd. Here they'd broken from the Pope, their former shepherd, and from the Catholic Church because they saw it false. When they went to maybe the Reformed or Lutheran traditions, those traditions wanted to kill them. So they turned away from that, and now they're out on their own without a lot of support, trying to figure out what the Bible teaches about pretty much every area of life. That being considered, they got a lot right. But the devil is always at work, and there were many involved who got a lot wrong. In fact, There were many prominent leaders of the Anabaptists who were leading sheep astray, themselves misled, misleading others. One of these, the most important, was known as Melchior Hoffman. Melchior had risen to prominence as an Anabaptist. Menno never met him, but Menno was very influenced by him. But the thing with Melchior is that although he seems to have taught that we should not take up the sword and kill people for religious reasons. Yet his preaching and his teaching were so apocalyptic and so fiery. And so this is the last day. He claimed that he himself was Elijah, come to usher in Jesus. It was such a passionate appeal that his followers ended up being divided with some who said, we're not going to take up swords and kill people like the Reformed or others. But there were others who said, if it's the last day, We need to clear out the unclean chaff from the impure church on earth. So there were large numbers of Anabaptists, or at least a number of Anabaptists, who took up the sword and killed people they thought were not following Scripture. Now, this led to one of the most important and unfortunate events of all of Anabaptist history which was there was a city in Germany called Munster. And there were some followers of Hoffman and other Anabaptists who had gone to Munster. They were the more radical, fiery type. They took up the sword. They took over this German city, and the Anabaptists did. They killed anyone who disagreed or drove them out of the city. And it eventually degenerated into this weird cult-like place where there was polygamy. There was a man ruling, claiming to be King David, It became a huge problem, so much so that Protestants and Catholics, very divided in the 16th century, actually came together to reclaim this errant city. 
They besieged it, destroyed it, killed the leadership. What this meant for the rest of Anabaptism was that even though many, many Anabaptists like Menno Simons did not believe in violence, in fact, Mennonites today, like Menno, are known for pacifism, no war, even though they were some of the most peaceful people, they were just clumped together with the Munsterites. So once you heard Anabaptist, you would think, if you give them the chance, they'll kill us. That leads to persecution for the Anabaptists for the rest of their, for this century, really. Now this is all important for the great event that's about to happen in Menno's life because Menno had a brother named Peter. Peter had gotten caught up in one of these branches coming from Munster, some influential Anabaptist leader, and he believed as well you can take up the sword. It was a sincere belief, it seems. It was mistaken. Menno knew that. But Peter had gone, and just a few months before Munster was destroyed, Peter and some other Anabaptists had gone and had sacked a monastery, took it over with the sword. It didn't last long. The Catholics came back, took it back over, killed many of the Anabaptists, including Peter. So word reaches Menno that his brother, sincere but misled, is now dead. And this, again, strikes at the conscience of this divided priest because here he's living in comfort and ease because he's not living according to what he really believes. Here's his brother who's misled, but because he actually follows through on his convictions, he's killed. And so Menno later recalled at that time, this so strikes him. He says, my heart trembled within me. I prayed to God with sighs and tears that he would give to me a sorrowing sinner, the gift of his grace, create within me a clean heart, and graciously through the merits of the crimson blood of Christ, forgive my unclean walk and frivolous, easy life, and bestow upon me wisdom, spirit, courage, and a manly spirit so that I might preach his exalted and adorable name and holy word in purity and make known his truth to his glory. It seems around this time that Menno, who had already knew the gospel, truly embraced it. He's truly converted. So, he keeps preaching the gospel, but over the next few months, he's preaching it more and more clearly, so much so that it seems something has to give. At this point in his life, as a true regenerate believer, he sees these two doors before him. Through one door is his easy, comfortable life. And it's open to him as long as he teaches what the Catholic Church requires him to teach. It's not what he believes, but if he goes with it, his life will be easy. There will probably be very little suffering. He will continue to be respected by family and by neighbors. Everything he's desired up to this point is through that door. And then through this door... There's a cross. And at this point in his life, he has to make the decision which door he's going to go through. And by the help of God's Spirit, he goes through the door to the cross. Towards the end of the year, that year, he stands up, I believe it's the end of the year, he stands up on a Sunday and he tells his congregation, I can no longer be a Catholic priest. The next day, 
he slips out of the city without telling anyone where he's going because from that moment, that instant he walked through that door, he knew that from that moment for the rest of his life, death will always now be one step away. We're moving from a priest divided into this next season of his life, which is just like the book we gave away. Now he is the fugitive. And he will be the rest of his life. As he wrote later in his journal about that difficult time, he said, With God's spirit, help, force, and hand, I left my good fame, honor, and name which I had with people and left all the anti-Christian errors, masses, child baptisms, easy life, and everything else. Voluntarily, I went in misery and poverty under the burden of the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ in all my weakness, fearing God, searching for real and true believers in God. That search for true believers took him from his hometown to a nearby part of the Netherlands, a town called Leeuwarden. No idea if I'm saying that right. I don't know Dutch. He goes to Leeuwarden. And he gets connected with the underground Anabaptist believers there. He'd heard there was a community there, it seems. He connects, and this is very important at the beginning of his ministry, because there he meets two brothers who up to this point have been some of the most significant leaders of the Anabaptists. Their names are Dirk and Oba Phillips. They're both serving together at or near Leah Warden. He goes there shortly after Oba, who was the more pastoral, if you will, of the brothers. Dirk tended to be more the theologian. Oba, greatly influential, he ordains Menno for ministry now, not as a Catholic priest, but now as an Anabaptist preacher of the gospel, traveling around and preaching. Probably around that time, we don't actually have a record of it, surprisingly, but probably about that time, he was baptized with believer's baptism. Now he was an Anabaptist, but more importantly, now he was a Christian. He was following Christ. One other important development in this early season is that since he's not a Catholic priest anymore, he's free to marry. And he marries a woman named Gertrude, who he'll take, with, he'll take her with him through the rest of his trials. Now, I don't know Menno's thoughts during this period, but it does seem like it's a bit of a honeymoon period in more ways than one, you know. For some who come to Christ, you count the costs, you go through the door, and then often Christ extends a special grace. And there's a season of joy and growth. You connect with believers. That seems to be what's happening in this very brief season of his life as he starts out in this new direction. But as I said, it's very brief. It does not last long. In fact, by the time he marries Gertrude, he's already moved to another city. This will be the pattern of his whole life. From this point, for the rest of his life, it's not like um, some of you have maybe moved every several years and you feel that's a bit overwhelming, and it is. He moved sometimes every few weeks, every few months. He said later that he almost never found a place where his dear wife and later children could settle down for even half a year. That would be the rest of his life. He would be an itinerant evangelist, traveling around and preaching, wanted, hunted. You say, why is he moving around so much? It's because he's hunted. In fact, as a foreshadow of everything else to come, it's around this time, Oba, who had ordained him, this important leader, is arrested. He's caught. 
And no doubt everyone expects him now to die. And that's what he would have done, except that somehow he managed to escape and to flee. But this is how life will be for Minna. So now we're in the late 1530s. Menno is moving from place to place. He's preaching the gospel, and there's two things that result from this. First is the growth of his influence and his ministry. He knew the scriptures, and he was gifted as a teacher. He began around this time not only to preach, but he also began to write. We have many of his writings today. He wrote lots of tracts, and what he found as an Anabaptist minister is it was really difficult to meet with other Anabaptists. You did it at risk of your life, and you had to come in and befriend people and find your way in. But what he found is he could have these tracts printed, and they could be distributed as a huge encouragement and a help for Anabaptists who were in hiding. So his influence actually is starting to increase at this point through his writings, through his teaching. He's becoming important in the Anabaptist movement. The second thing that's happening is that the lion, the devil, rouses himself and comes full force against what's happening because people are believing in Christ through what's being preached and taught. And the devil will not have it. You see his, his wrath increased even as Menno's influence is increased. So, for example, 1540, within the camp, Oba renounced his own ministry. This is hugely devastating, no doubt. But he had actually been ordained by people f- connected with Munster. And that had so troubled him, he thought, I, is my ordination as a teacher valid? Because they were connected with this horrible stuff. He'd seen now that was bad stuff. So he actually renounced the ministry. Menno referred to Oba, his former mentor, as a Demas, one who loved the world and left the ministry. Two years after this, there is pressure increasing from outside. Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, sees that Menno's influence is increasing so much in the Netherlands that he puts forward an edict that mentions Menno Simons by name and says... If you help us catch this heretic, you get a hundred guilders, a huge sum of money. If, on the other hand, you even host him or read any of his works, we might kill you. You lose property, you may lose life. It's really hard for us in our context to understand what day-to-day life looked like for Menno Simons, these 25 years of his ministry. He and Gertrude are fleeing from town to town. Eventually, they start a family. They have one, then two, then three children, a son, two girls at least. And they're trying to move from place to place, often just one step past death. He knows that if he's caught, the common practice was you would typically burn the man and you would drown his wife sometime afterward. So this is the risk that he's running and he and Gertrude know it. And you try to live in that state. It's hard to imagine. That's a That's a tense state. And it's not like he's far from the action. He's in the middle. So what's happening in this season of his life, for 25 years really, is that many, many, many of his close friends, he gets news after news of them being caught, being burned, beheaded, tortured, and being drowned. And this is just normal life for him. 
And the expectation, of course, I'm sure of many, is this, is this will be his end as well. He's the leader of the movement at this point, getting there. I'm sure it was a huge burden for him that people he stayed with, who housed him, extended hospitality. There were more than one who were afterward caught because of this and put to death. Think of the burden that puts on you as a, as a minister, knowing that that was a consequence of your staying there. He's writing like many of the reformers were writing, but what sets him apart is he has no library. It's not possible for him to have a library because he's not in one place, and yet still he's writing practical, often devotional, and sometimes theological works. Now the devil, as I said, isn't just working outside with this immense persecution in the Netherlands and the regions around it, but the devil's also working among the Anabaptists. So what starts to happen as years go by is he's now clearly a leader, and so his energy is turning from just simply preaching the gospel to now he has to deal with a lot of in-house problems, mainly influential Anabaptist leaders who go too far and lead the people astray. Because, again, as I said, because they're breaking away from everyone else. This was common. And so, for example, one man who at first they seem on friendly terms, I think, a man named David Yoris, another very important leader of the Anabaptists, but he leaned too much to the spiritual and the internal and the intangible. And what I mean by that is there was this strand of kind of mystical spiritualism that was throughout Anabaptism, and I think maybe some of that came from the fact that they had lived in the Catholic Church doing the rituals which were external and dead. So when they realized Scripture taught you need an inner new birth, that was so exciting that some took it too far. And a man like David Yoris took it so far as to say, well, it's the inner stuff that matters, so number one, the Bible's not that important. We have the inner leading of the Holy Spirit. Number two, if you don't want to be persecuted, Yoris taught, and that's fine, just pretend you're a Catholic. Just do the outward stuff because the outward stuff doesn't matter, and you can live with true belief within. Menno fought hard against this kind of thinking with Yoris and certainly with others. Because you remember his story was he was captured by the Catholic Church and its teaching and he realized that he and many others would always have stayed there if they had not gone to the Scriptures. That's what the Reformation gave the people. It gave them the Scriptures. And when he went to the Scriptures, that's when his eyes were opened and eventually the break happened. If the Anabaptists, he knew... Breaking away from the error of the Catholic Church turned to that same core problem of not giving proper emphasis on the scriptures, then they would go in exactly the same direction. And he fought that. He was an advocate of scripture, going to scripture itself. Now, as he gets into his later life, I'm sad to say, things get worse. This is a man who suffered. He suffered well. He suffered quite a lot. What happens toward the end of his life, a great grief for him, he's seen many people come to Christ, he's seen the Anabaptist movement grow even though Catholics and Protestants are persecuting, but as he gets towards the end of his life, internal problems increase. This, he knew, I'm sure, is going to be partly what happens when you advocate a free church, a church that's not tied to or enforced by the state. If you don't have a pope 
and an emperor to kill you if you disagree, then there are going to be disagreements. And hence today, the many denominations we find, which is not ideal, but it's better than a pope enforcing one denomination at threat of death. So a free church is going to lead to divisions. That's what happens even at the end of his life within the Anabaptist movement. To keep things briefly, again, another influential young pastor, leader of the Anabaptists. Among the Anabaptists, there was a practice of church discipline from Matthew 18. Because they viewed the church as only true believers, they were, and this was right, if there was a member who began living clearly like an unbeliever, they would push the member out of the church. That's Matthew 18, to cause restoration. But because other churches weren't doing that, this became a distinguishing mark of the Anabaptists, something they were maybe almost proud of. There was a young pastor who took this so far that there was a married couple in his congregation and the husband stopped living like a Christian so he got banned, kicked out, and the young pastor told his wife, you're not allowed to associate with him anymore. This was a very strict ban. She refused so he banned her as well. This led to an explosion, a division among the Anabaptists because there were already stricter Anabaptists in Menno's hometown of Phrygia because they tended to just be stricter people in general. And then there were those who were more lenient in other places and there was this huge disagreement. Menno ended up, he wanted to stop the divisions, but he did end up siding with the stricter view of the ban. And for good reasons in his mind. But the legacy of that after his life, after he dies, is that's why he's known today as the father of the Mennonites, especially of the Amish. Because if, if you just think, if you're characterized by the ban, you take it a little bit too far, carry it on from generation to generation, add to that that everyone out there wants to kill you, and you end up Amish. You know, you end up with that very seclusive community that's known for shunning those who don't agree, right? That's one legacy. The Mennonites carried his pacifism, but obviously vary in what else they hold on to. But this legacy is not the legacy we're remembering this morning when we think about Menno as we come to the end of the Reformation. 1559, Gertrude died, and two years later, 1561, he died. He had been crippled from an injury in his hip for the last part of his life, traveling with a crutch. He had carried his cross 25 years, he could have gone to the Lutheran or the Reformed or back to the Catholic Church and he could have found comfort, peace, prosperity, security, all the things we looked for. But he had chosen the cross instead and he carried that cross his whole life. His young son died as a child. His teenage daughter died of a sickness as well. He suffered all his life. But Menno went with Scripture no matter what that cost. When it came to the nature of the church... He got it right. He got it right when no one else was getting it right, and that's what he suffered for. He got it right even when great men like Luther and Calvin didn't get it quite right. And he suffered for that and was willing to suffer for that. And if we were to ask here at the end of this course on the Reformation and here at the end of our last Reformer, what gave a man like Menno this kind of confidence to leave everything and to build his life on something entirely new? What gave any of the reformers this willingness to leave everything they were familiar with, to suffer what they knew must be death or persecution? 
What was the foundation that undergirt this bold movement of the reformers and of thousands of people across Europe in the 16th century? And the answer that summarizes it all is the motto of Menno Simon's life. It is the one verse that he wrote on the front page of every single tract he ever published. And it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. And it reads, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this final reformer, and I thank you for his example of suffering. I thank you um, some of the theological errors about Christ he had early on. He realized and renounced later. But I thank you that in many ways he was a faithful follower who loved you and suffered greatly for the truth. And I pray that you would give us that same spirit, that willingness if you should require it of, of us to go through that door of the cross tonight to leave behind the comforts we now enjoy, I pray you'd give us the willingness to go through that door and to do it unhesitatingly and with joy for the sake of Christ, building our life upon that one sure foundation. So Christ, it's in your name we pray. Amen.